0: Let's begin with prayer. We praise you, Jesus, the one risen Son of God. And how amazing it is to us that you became like us so that we could become one with you and experience the power and the glory of our resurrected Savior, as we've just sung. We ask that by your Spirit, you would focus our hearts and attention on you. In this text this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Again, that's Luke 2. This morning, we conclude our study of Luke 1 and 2. These two chapters narrate what took place before and after the birth of Christ. And when you take a step back and look at it as a whole, you realize it is packed with amazing things that have happened over a relatively short period of time. The book of Luke begins with the angel Gabriel appearing to Zacharias in the temple. He tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth, who are both very old, they'll have a son. And their son would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. That in itself is incredible. But Luke takes us along this journey. Six months later, Gabriel shows up again. This time, to Elizabeth's relative named Mary. She would be the one who would bear the Messiah. She's never been married. She's never known a man, but she's going to have this baby. And Gabriel tells her that he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be Israel's king. Luke takes us three months later. You can do the math. It's the birth of John the Baptist. Zacharias finally can speak again, and he prophesies that this baby would be the Messiah. This is speaking of Jesus. He would bring about the consolation, the redemption, of Israel. And he says that his own son, John, would go before Jesus to prepare the way. Do the math again. We've got six months, and Luke takes us to the birth of Jesus, which we know is announced by angels, right? All these random people, shepherds coming to the birth. It's very exciting, very strange. Then 40 days after that, we heard about this last week on Christmas Eve morning, Jesus is taken by his parents to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. And Mary and Joseph are met by some more random people. Simeon, this devout and righteous man, and the prophetess, Anna, they are in awe at this baby. And they say all kinds of incredible things about him. They say Jesus will be called the Lord's Messiah, God's salvation, and the glory of Israel. Can you imagine the excitement building over these 16 or 17 months for Zacharias and Elizabeth? We're having a baby. (laughs) This is a a miracle, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Mary, your relative, is having the Messiah? I mean, imagine that. And for Mary and Joseph... All these random people showing up at weird times, at the birth, you know, at this dedication in the temple and saying incredible things about what their baby would do. Last week at the Christmas candlelight service, Christmas Eve candlelight service, Pastor Paul pointed out a strange feature of Jesus. Do you remember what it was? It was strange to me. It was an umbilical cord. Jesus had an umbilical cord. Now, why is that strange to us? I mean, it's it's strange to me, like I said. I think a part of the reason that seems like such a strange feature is we read Luke 1 and 2, and we see all of this, and we're convinced Jesus is not an ordinary child, which is true. But Jesus was a human child. And like every other human, he had an umbilical cord. And when he came out of the womb, he wasn't talking in full sentences. He didn't arrive and was able to take care of himself or take care of anybody else. Joseph and Mary entered into a time of long days and short years, as some have called it. Feed, nap, cry, change, and then repeat over and over. Mundane routines, regular life. So think about this speed bump for them. Incredible anticipation and excitement at who this person is. Angelic and prophetic pronouncements about what he would do. And then, it's a baby who can't do any of the things People have been talking about all this time. Luke summarizes the long days and short years in Luke 2, verse 40. He says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Mary and Joseph experienced his first words, his first steps. They saw him getting taller. And stronger. They saw him learn about the world, about God. Increase in wisdom, as the text says. Luke tells us that the grace or the favor of God was evident in his life. Our text today begins in Luke 2, 41. And it interrupts Joseph and Mary in these mundane years. In chapter 3, we're introduced to Jesus and John as adults, The action begins. Their ministries take off. Jesus is all over the place. I mean, he is casting out demons in these confrontations. He's healing the sick. He's preaching incredible sermons that are powerful. But Luke doesn't go straight there. There's something he wants us to see and to learn from Jesus before Jesus ever grows up. Look with me at Luke two. We'll look at verses 41 and 42 and see where Luke takes us from Jesus' childhood. He writes, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. So we see Jesus is no longer an infant. More than a decade has passed. And Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem with Jesus for the Passover. The Passover was an annual feast in which Israel remembered the salvation they experienced from God from the hands of the Egyptians when they were slaves. The law required that every Jewish man attend three festivals a year, and Passover was one of them. Joseph and Mary, being devout, went every year. And Mary's presence at the feast, which wasn't required by the law, was evidence of their deep love for God. And this year, they brought their 12-year-old son, Jesus. At 12, he was just one year away from being fully initiated into the religious community and taking responsibility for himself. So after what would have been a three-day journey on foot from Nazareth, the family would have arrived in Jerusalem. During the feast, they would have experienced ceremonial dancing. There would have been singing, noisy processions, making their way up to the temple. It was a joyous time. There would have been lots of food, The week-long feast not only celebrated Passover, but also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was connected to the barley harvest. This was an annual celebration for God's provision in the past, but also in the present. And this year, the Passover feast was likely no different than other years. But there was one thing that was different, and it was memorable for all of the wrong reasons, it was their trip home after the feast was over. Once the conclusion of the feast had come, Jesus' parents would have assembled their belongings and joined a caravan that was traveling back to Nazareth. Joseph and Mary began their journey, but Jesus was not with them. The child stayed back in Jerusalem. Look with me at verses 43 and the first half of verse 44. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days required, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. Instead, they thought he was somewhere in the caravan, and they went a day's journey. Jesus didn't leave with his parents, and his parents didn't realize he was missing. They went a whole day's journey from Jerusalem without knowing he wasn't with them. In the second half of verse 44, we see that Mary and Joseph realized their mistake. Look at verse 44 again, the end of it. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now, Mary would have been traveling in the front of the caravan with the other women and the children, and Joseph probably would have been traveling in the rear of the caravan with the men. So they travel all day, right? then the day comes, they get together, Where's Jesus? I thought you had him. He's not with you? I mean, they probably have some kind of exchange like this. So they do what you do, right? He's got to be somewhere else. And they look and they search. And he's not with anybody else in their group. Look in verse 45. It tells us what they did next. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now, when they got to the point of not finding him, it seems like we'll see um, down in the next section that it was three days before they actually found him. So probably they looked, couldn't find him. They weren't able to travel at night because of the danger. So they spent the night, the crack of dawn, the caravan went one way and they went the other. They returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Now think about this, how anxious Joseph and Mary would have been. They had a day of travel away from Jerusalem, a day of travel back. And like I said, in this next section, in verse 46, we'll see they don't find him until the third day. They had no cell phones, no way to locate him except to look to ask every person they could find. Just like what we would do, right? If you had a missing child, you would ask every random stranger. You'd get to Jerusalem and you'd retrace your steps. You'd look at the place where, you'd, where you stayed. You'd talk to people that you had met in Jerusalem. And eventually, their search leads them to the temple. The temple would have still been busy with teachers of the law and scholars who were sticking around, discussing theology, posing questions to each other. This was a unique opportunity to gather and learn from one another. And Joseph and Mary make their way to the temple, and there, perhaps sitting in one of the spacious and beautiful porches, columns, perhaps sitting in the midst of a group of teachers, they saw their son. And their son didn't look like a lost child. You know what I mean? Worried, you know, looking around. Are my parents going to find me? No. He was engaged. And they would have seen that everybody in that group around Jesus had their eyes fixed on him. Because he was asking questions. And then the teachers would ask him questions. And he would give intelligent answers. And everyone who heard what was happening right there? Was amazed. We see this in verses 46 and 47, beginning with his parents' search. It says, Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Everyone was amazed. How could this boy, this child, who's not even 13 years old, the age when he would take responsibility for himself as a member of the covenant community, how could this one be so wise and intelligent? How could he have so much understanding? Everyone who heard him was astonished. Perhaps most of all, his parents. Mary and Joseph approach him and Mary wants to know, what were you thinking? Verse 48, when Joseph and Mary saw him, they were bewildered. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. What was Jesus thinking? We find out in verse 49, from the mouth of this 12-year-old boy, we hear, why is it that you were looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Now I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old in my house. And as I was studying this passage this week, I told my wife yesterday, I think I need to give the benefit of the doubt To my 11 and 13 year old when they respond to my questions in a similar fashion, because Jesus was able to pull this off without sinning. (laughs) This boy, Jesus, whom Gabriel told Mary would be the son of the Most High, he had to be in his father's house. Now if you're reading from the King James Version, you'll see a slightly different translation of Jesus' answer. He says, Did you not know that I had to be about my Father's business? The reason for this difference is because Jesus uses a Greek idiom that could be translated either way. Both translations carry a similar idea, and they both reveal Jesus' awareness of his special relationship to God, his Father. Jesus knew that he needed to learn and to prepare for the mission given to him by his father. These words were probably strange and a little startling to Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. We're used to calling God our father because of the way Jesus taught us to pray. But speaking about God like that wasn't normal in Jesus' day. And even though the familiar Christmas stories that we've been studying are right next to this in the Gospel of Luke, more than a decade has gone by for Mary and Joseph. And perhaps the freshness and the excitement of those 16 to 17 months has worn off. Verse 50. And yet they on their part did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Mary and Joseph knew Jesus better than anyone else. They loved him. They sacrificed for for him. They invested hours and days and nights raising him. They watched him take those first steps. They taught him his first words. And yet, there was something missing in their understanding of Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus did not disrespect his parents. Even though he was misunderstood, Jesus went back to Nazareth with them and continued to obey and submit to them. Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued to be subject to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. This strange parenting moment strikes a familiar chord in Mary's heart. Luke told us that the amazing events of Jesus' birth left Mary treasuring and pondering. And she's doing it here again. Who is this child that we're raising? It's possible that Mary's thoughts also went back to the words of Simeon in the temple the day they took Jesus as an infant to dedicate him. Ben covered this on Christmas Eve morning last week, in Luke 2.35, Simeon told Mary that a sword will pierce even your own soul. The anxiety and the grief that Jesus caused Mary by staying back in Jerusalem was just the tip of what was to come. After everyone returned home again, Luke tells us that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, his intelligence and his understanding. And he kept increasing in stature. He kept getting taller and his voice got lower. Verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. In these verses, Luke brings together everything that he's been saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But this text is different because it isn't focused on what others have to say about who Jesus is. It isn't angelic announcements or prophecies given to Mary and Joseph in the temple. In this text, for the first time, we hear from Jesus himself This wasn't in the birth narrative, because Jesus couldn't say it then. But now he's 12, and his words reveal that he is no ordinary child. Others have said it, and now he says it himself. The young Jesus knew that he was God's son. Even at the early age of 12, Jesus knew that he was not just the child of Mary and Joseph, but that he was the unique son of God. And that's a really big deal. In Luke's gospel, he goes on to show us why that's so so important. In chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, the father says, this is my beloved son. And then in chapter 9, at the glorious transfiguration, The father speaks again. He tells James and, uh, he tells James, Peter, James, and John. Gotta get those three right. He tells the three, this is my son. Listen to him. The son knows the father. And he's given authority by the father, right? To listen to him. In Luke's gospel, even the demons know who Jesus is. In chapter 4 and chapter 8, they don't call him the son of Joseph. They call him the son of God, the son of the Most High. And toward the end of Luke, we find Jesus yet again in the temple at Passover time with teachers of the law. But instead of mutual learning and discussions about theology, these religious men look for a way to destroy Jesus. In chapter 22, they ask him point-blank about his identity. Was he the son of God? Was he claiming to have the authority of the Father? In Luke 22, the religious leaders press Jesus about his claim to have this special relationship with the Father. And Jesus simply says, yes, I am. He gives them exactly what they need to see him killed. Just as the glorious and powerful Son of God humbled himself by becoming a baby, just as this glorious and powerful Son of God humbled himself by submitting to his earthly parents, so our glorious and powerful Savior, the Son of God, humbled himself by letting evil men nail him to the cross. If you look at this merely through the lens of earthly power, it does not make sense. Why would the Son of the Most High do this? In Luke nineteen ten, Jesus says that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek and to save the lost. That is the mission of the Father. God's Son coming as a baby, God's Son living a human life, including being a twelve year old boy. God's Son dying at the hands of sinners. It was his plan. It was the business of the father that he had to be about. That's what the son came to do. You know, over at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24, Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and a bunch of other women find the empty tomb, and an angel tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead. They're very excited. They go back and tell the disciples, and you know how the disciples respond? Luke 24, 11 says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they did not believe them. We've seen that before. Mary and Joseph did not understand the statement which he had made to them. I had to be in my father's house. Mary and Joseph, the disciples, they were slow to truly understand who Jesus was and why he came. Luke is trying to help us see it before launching into the drama of his public ministry that would climax in his death on the cross. He wants us to see that Jesus knew who he was and he knew he needed to prepare for the Father's mission. Just like Mary, Joseph, and the disciples, You and I can be slow to understand, too. But God is patient with us. Just like he was doing 2,000 years ago, he is seeking to save the lost. He died so that we might be forgiven. And he was raised to life so that we might be transformed into the likeness of his son, to the likeness of Jesus. He offers the life of God to all those who would bend the knee to bow to King Jesus, to put their faith and trust in him. Who is Jesus? Luke reveals that he is the Son of God. And today is the day to turn from our sin, from ourselves, to him. You know, each one of us has to make a decision about who Jesus is. And in some ways, the decision is pretty straightforward. Either he is the son of God, or he isn't. He's either God's son, like he himself said, or he's a liar, or he's just crazy. Reducing him, like is popular today, to a good teacher, or a moral philosopher, or even a source of personal spiritual comfort, it's wrong. It's not what the Bible says about Jesus, and it's not what Jesus says about himself. In Luke 2, 41 through 52, Jesus makes clear his identity. He is God's son. But there's something else in this passage for us. Jesus shows us what it looks like to grow in our knowledge of and love for the Father. Jesus gives us an example of how each one of us can grow in the Christian Life turn with me to proverbs 3 What we see lived out in luke 2 is explained in proverbs 3 Proverbs 3 5 and 6 are among some of the most Well-known and memorized verses in the bible Trust in the lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths You know, when you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did. He trusted the Father with his whole heart, even to the point of death. That kind of gives that verse a different flavor, doesn't it? Before his arrest in the garden, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. He knew the Father, he loved the Father, and he trusted the Father with his whole heart. Proverbs 3 is presented as wise words from a father to his son, a son on the verge of adulthood, perhaps a 12-year-old boy. Look at verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but have your heart comply with my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. The teaching and commandments here are specifically the message of Proverbs, turning away from folly and sin to the Lord, to fear him, to love him, to honor him. And verse 2 gives the incentive behind this. God's covenant with Israel, blessing for obedience, getting life and peace. And then in verse 3, the father tells his son not just to Learn his teaching, to hear his teaching, but to live it out. Verse three. Do not, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. You know, in Exodus 34, when God reveals his name to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness or kindness and truth. This loving kindness and truth that brings definition to God's character is the same kindness and truth that should, should define the son's character in Proverbs 3.3. 3. They're the same words in Hebrew. This father tells his son that his character should look like God's character. And then in verse 4, we find incentive again. So you will find favor and a good reputation in the sight of God and man. Does that sound familiar? Like the end of Luke 2? Favor with God and man? That's what Luke says Jesus found. Can you see how Proverbs 3 helps us to see what Luke is getting at with Jesus? Jesus was on the verge of adulthood. Jesus was learning and drinking deeply of God's teaching and commandments. And it wasn't just head knowledge. Jesus yielded to his parents, and he honored them. And Luke tells us, at the conclusion, that he found favor with God and man. Jesus was faithful in growing through seeking his heavenly Father as a 12-year-old boy. He shows us the way. Each one of us in this room has room to grow in our understanding of God, whether you're a 12-year-old boy and still growing, or you're a 60- or 70-year-old Person and shrinking. We all have a ways to go. We can listen to the words of Proverbs 3. We can see Jesus' example and in the power of the new life we found in Him, follow where He has led. This morning you heard about Bible reading plans. What an amazing coincidence. (laughs) I thought it was a coincidence. Bible reading plans. What an amazing way to learn and grow in your love for Christ and the Father in 2024. There's so much junk that we put into our hearts and into our minds. There's so many things to get angry about, to worry about. So many things we use to treat our loneliness and our pain. And God's word is sitting right here at our fingertips. Talk to some friends and get a group together to read God's Word and then discuss what you've read and how you want to live it out. Or find a friend and make a plan to memorize Scripture in 2024. Or you could jump into one of the communities that's focused on learning about God and growing together right here at Glenwood, a life group, a Sunday morning class, men's or women's Bible study, if you're a young adult, the calling, or if you're a student, youth group. Find ways to seek the Lord and grow as a follower of Christ. Now I suspect there are some skeptics squirming in their seats right now. Some of us who are a little more jaded about such things, especially this time of year, when we talk about resolutions, about change. It can be very hard. And yes, that is true. There's a good reason for your skepticism. We know from experience that sustained growth Rarely comes easy. It takes work. It takes discipline, and it doesn't always fe- doesn't always feel good. And this isn't just true in growing in your love for God. It's true about New Year's resolutions to exercise more or to eat less. It's true in our friendships and relationships. It's true in our marriages. You've got to sustain interest and effort, even when you hit setbacks and experience failures. Even when you fall down, and you fall down again, you've got to get back up and keep going. You know, that's actually a biblical idea. Proverbs 24, 16 says, A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Isn't that interesting? You would think that a righteous man is somebody who doesn't ever fall. But he says... A righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. I think sometimes we have an idea about what it means to live the Christian life and it's totally messed up. Stumbling and falling are things that we should count on. We shouldn't expect that following Christ and our relationship with God will come easy. We can often be impatient in our pursuit of Jesus. We like the mountaintop experiences in life. We want things to be going well. We want there to be excitement in our daily walk. In some ways, like those 16 or 17 months that begin the Gospel of Luke. But in reality, growth can be hard, especially in the mundane, especially when we face setbacks. It takes sustained effort. And Jesus knows how hard sustained effort can be. In our text, we get a glimpse of Jesus being faithful in the mundane. His big moments are 10 years behind him and two decades ahead of him. He's a 12 year old, preparing, learning, growing, being faithful. Wherever you find yourself today, let's follow Jesus' example and grow in our knowledge of and love for the Father. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, God's Son, what an incredible way to end 2023 and begin 2024. Jesus is inviting you to believe, to turn from yourself, from your sin, and follow him. And for those of us in the room who have said yes to Jesus, the 12-year-old boy shows us well what pursuing the Father looks like. And today, wherever you find yourself, maybe you're coming off a really good year, a year of growth and a year of excitement. Or maybe right now you're in a spiritual ditch. You've fallen down. You've disappointed yourself. Maybe you've even hurt others. It's time to get up again to receive the forgiveness and new life of our Savior and keep going. Together, let's follow Him. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for sending your Son to make a way for us to get up again. (laughs) Thank you for forgiveness and new life. And Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself by becoming like us so that we could become like you. Thank you for showing us, even as a boy, what it looks like to love the Father well. Give us strength by your Spirit to follow in your footsteps today and this coming year. You humbled yourself and paid the ultimate price to win our freedom. And because of this, the Father has highly exalted you and given you a name above every other name. Jesus, we look forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. And Father, I pray for those here today who have yet to bow the knee to King Jesus. Give them eyes to see your incredible Son and the forgiveness and life he brings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.